Hi, everybody. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the 15th session in our There and Back Again series exploring Tolkien's Middle Earth. Tonight is a landmark occasion because tonight we are going to begin The Lord of the Rings, kind of. Tonight we're going to look at the prefatory material for The Fellowship of the Ring, which is almost as good, right? That's almost you know, story, but the truth is that we can't simply launch into The Lord of the Rings without first framing our discussion. So tonight is going to be a little different from previous episodes of There and Back Again because we're going to do less close textual analysis. We're going to look a little more deeply into the actual history of The Lord of the Rings in terms of its writing and in terms of its publication. And then we're going to move through the prefatory material and call out a few interesting details that will serve to illuminate our progression through the first chapter, which we'll get to next week. I see everyone here in the YouTube chat. I do apologize for the slightly late start. YouTube was being a little finicky. YouTube didn't want us to have a live chat tonight. I can't imagine why. YouTube clearly doesn't understand the importance of such things. But I'm very glad to have you all here. Valerie and Angela and Joseph and Merging Puppy, which is a pretty great name, and Becca and Jackie and everyone is here and it's wonderful. I'm obviously so excited to talk about The Lord of the Rings. I'm so excited to get into this material because The Lord of the Rings is really where it is at for me as a reader of Tolkien. I love The Hobbit, as I've discussed before. I love The Silmarillion and the extended universe that Tolkien created. But The Lord of the Rings remains one of the most ambitious, one of the most developed, one of the most thorough, one of the most sophisticated fantasy novels in the entire English canon. And I'm saying one of only because I don't want to invite comparison. It is actually the most sophisticated, most ambitious, most well-crafted, most thoughtful, most fully developed fantasy novel that I've ever read, and I wager that you have ever read either. It is a legitimately astonishing piece of work, and we're going to be able to talk about it in a great deal of depth. Those of you who have looked ahead at the schedule will see that over the course of the next three weeks, we are going to discuss the first three chapters of The Fellowship of the Ring. We're going to compress a couple of chapters at certain points, but really it's going to be a chapter a week for, for most of our journey through The Lord of the Rings, which gives us a great deal of time to talk about all this fantastic detail, the richness of Tolkien's secondary creation. As ever, of course, if you are joining me live, you can join here in the YouTube chat. You can, you can jump in here with thoughts and comments and observations, or you can tweet at me using the hashtag tab again, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N, where I can see your comments either tonight, live, or in the course of the week that follows. This podcast will, of course, be available in the regular podcast feed within the next 24 hours, let's say. We've been having a little trouble getting these uh, podcasts out with with suitable alacrity, but that, I'm sure, is has, has uh, come to an end, and we'll be able to, uh, to get the podcast out to you in the very near future. Let's take a look, then. Um, gosh, we're already anticipating Sam. We just can't wait for Sam. Yes, yes. Oh, no, Jackie. I'm not covering the first three chapters next week. I'm covering chapter one next week, chapter two the following week, chapter, chapter three the, the week after that. So I'm going to really take my time moving through the Fellowship of the Ring. We've got a lot of material to cover, and I can't wait. It's Sam time, people, says it don't connect. We'll have lots of opportunity to talk about Sam starting next week. Can't wait. Everyone is here. Everything is working. The YouTube chat is is just humming away. This is perfect. So let's get into it. Um. Tolkien basically finished writing The Hobbit in 1933 and spent the next few years editing and tweaking that manuscript. He spent a little bit of time revising, a little bit of time, you know, j just massaging it so that it was it was perfect before it went to publication. But while he was engaged in this pre-publication work, he was working for the third time 
on his mythology of our modern world. Back in 1916 or thereabouts, at the age of about 25, Tolkien had begun work on the Book of Lost Tales, a mythological history of our ancient world. This was supposed to be part of his desire to, to create a mythology for England specifically. And the Book of Lost Tales is actually fascinating because it carries with it a really curious framing device that, that absolutely locks the stories which we would later associate with the Silmarillion or to be more precise, versions of the stories that we would later associate with the Silmarillion into our own ancient history. He created a, a, a through line that drew those stories right into our present context, which was a really interesting and, and bold approach to this kind of mythopoeia. Um, that was the first time that he had worked on this mythological framework. And as I said, it was the starting point for many of the stories which would later become a part of the history of Middle-earth. The Ainulindale, the creation myth that we discussed a little last week, has its origins here, as well as Baron and Luthien and Turin Turambar and the fall of Gondolin and, and so many stories that we now recognize. All of those can be traced back, in, in principle at least, to the Book of Lost Tales in 1916-1917. Tolkien abandoned this project, which would later be picked up and published by his son Christopher after his death as a part of the History of Middle-earth series, and went on to write The Lay of the Children of Hurin, an epic poem which retells the story of the aforementioned Turin Turambar. This was basically his second approach to, to writing this mythology. This, too, faltered. It faltered before 1919-1920. So he had set this aside for quite some time until he had finished writing, but not yet published, the Hobbit. At this point, he returns to this mythology and started over with a new version, the versions that would later become known as the Silmarillion. So he works effectively on the Silmarillion up until The Hobbit is published in 1937 and is an immediate success. It is an overnight sensation, so much so that his publishers, Alan and Unwin, contact him immediately and say, a sequel? Because even in the middle part of the 20th century, the publishing industry was still the publishing industry. So Tolkien considers, huh, I've been working on all this Silmarillion stuff. This is really the meat of it. This is really where, where everyone's focus should be. Hey, Alan and Unwin, how about publishing the Silmarillion? So he sent them the fragmentary manuscript that he had, and they took a look at it and said, no, no, this is far too niche, far too obscure, even for fans of The Hobbit. So anyone who had come along with Bilbo on his adventure and then opens the, the, the Silmarillion to find the Ainulindale, who, who tries to get through the Quenta, is going to struggle. This is not really a sequel to that previous book. So Tolkien set aside the Silmarillion, but that was what was in his head. That was what he was thinking about as he sat down to write The Hobbit 2, Electric Boogaloo. He was trying to figure out how to write a story that was true to The Hobbit, but also fold in some of this greater history. And there's a brief account of this given in, in the foreword of, the, uh, of most editions of The Lord of the Rings that you guys are reading, I'm sure. So The Hobbit was published on the 21st of September, 1937. By the middle of December, Tolkien had contacted Alan and Unwin with an outline of the beginning of a new story. Bilbo Baggins is going to throw a huge party to celebrate his 80th birthday and would then leave Hobbiton again because the treasure that he had brought back at the end of The Hobbit had run out. Basically, he was impoverished and had to venture forth once more into the realm of fairy, into the wild, to get more treasure, I guess. That was replaced by a second version of the manuscript. Tolkien basically wrote a handful of pages of this, no more, went back and started again and introduced Gandalf. This time Gandalf was going to show up again as part of the inciting incident. Then he went back and revised it again, taking Bilbo out of the spotlight and instead creating a new protagonist, Bilbo's son, 
Bingo. Bingo, Bulger Baggins. At this point, Tolkien began to revise the motivation that underlay his hero's desire to leave the Shire in the first place. And this is when he starts to turn his attention toward the ring and to one of the loose ends left by the Hobbit, the Necromancer. This is the point at which the ring becomes the ring. This is the point at which he begins to expand his understanding of, of what has happened in Middle-earth, of what is happening in Middle-earth. And he begins to create this much broader, wider tapestry. So he goes back and he retcons the ring and he decides, okay, let's see how this is going to work. How, how is this going to motivate the action? And he revises and he revises and he revises and he revises a lot because Tolkien was still working at this time as a full-time academic and progress came slowly. He finally started uh, showing the manuscript to his publishers in 1947 and finished the first revised draft in 1949. So 12 years after The Hobbit had been published, he has basically a workable manuscript. So in 1949, he is all but ready to publish. He thinks that this book will at least work, will at least, you know, fulfill the promise made by the sequel to The Hobbit. But at this point, he is having a falling out with his publishers, Alan and Unwin. So he takes it instead to the publisher, Collins, who responds by saying, no, no, this book is in urgent need of cutting. This million words that you have just deposited on my desk, this needs to be cut all the way back and turned into, you know, a conventional 95,000 word novel. Surprising no one. Tolkien was less than impressed with the thought of, of hacking away at his lovingly prepared manuscript, this book upon which he had been working for more than a decade. So he went back to Alan and Unwin and finally negotiated a publication deal that would release The Lord of the Rings in three discrete volumes. The first, The Fellowship of the Ring, on the 29th of July, 1954. The second, The Two Towers, on the 11th of November, 19, uh, the 11th of November 1954. And then The Return of the King on the 20th of October, 1955. And I would invite you just to consider that for a moment. You buy Fellowship in July, you buy The Two Towers in November, and then you have to wait 11 months to get The Return of the King. There were horrible delays associated with the return of the king. There were uh, material associated with the appendices that, that just wasn't ready. So Tolkien had to revise that material himself, get it back to the publishers. So th those delays were, were awful and unintentional. But that didn't stop the book from being just a titanic success. We should note, too, 54 and 55. Those are the years where The Lord of the Rings is published. But prior to this, Tolkien had already gone back and prepared that famous second edition of The Hobbit that was published in 1951. That's the version of The Hobbit that we've all read now, where Gollum and the Ring are revised into their Lord of the Rings compatible versions. So he's already gone back after effectively completing the manuscript for The Lord of the Rings in 1949. He goes back to revise The Hobbit. That is released again to huge acclaim. And then in 54 and 55, The Lord of the Rings is released. Now, it's worth noting that I mentioned earlier, in fact, that, that Tolkien was working on what we might think of as Silmarillion stories while The Hobbit was, was being prepared for publication. But what's really fascinating is that The Hobbit was not a part of that mythology, was not a part of that fictional world. There are associations, there are details taken from the Silmarillion that, that appear in the pages of The Hobbit because Tolkien liked nothing more than recycling names and recycling really good ideas. And he did that with fair regularity. So 
there is an Elrond, for example, contained within the pages of the Silmarillion, and there is, of course, Elrond and Rivendell contained within the pages of The Hobbit, but this was more of a more of a nod than it was an indication that these two stories took place within the same shared world. It wasn't until The Lord of the Rings that Tolkien undertook his great work of unification, where he drew together the Hobbit and the Silmarillion and the, the story that he was writing for the Lord of the Rings and united them all into one shared story, into to one sprawling and epic tale from the first age to the end of the third age. He, he created this completely unparalleled, this completely unique fantasy world and did so beautifully. It is a testament to his mastery as a world builder and a storyteller that he manages to unify the Hobbit with this, this contextual frame, which is utterly alien to, to even the tone and the spirit of the Hobbit, without so much as a ripple on the surface. He revises, as I said, the second edition of The Hobbit in 1951, but that is, intent, uh, that is intentional and specific. He's revising the ring a little bit, but mostly he's just revising Gollum, and that's just to make these elements work in The Lord of the Rings. Generally speaking, there's there's no change, there's no substantial change to The Hobbit that makes it fit better within the context of the Silmarillion at that point. So by 1955, the complete Lord of the Rings has been released. It is a huge and immediate success, but there is a wrinkle because there is a question mark over the copyright status of the Lord of the Rings in the United States. It seems as though it's possible that the Lord of the Rings wasn't properly copyrighted when it was published in this country. So we get unauthorized versions of the Lord of the Rings being published, which of course don't pay Tolkien a cent. They, they don't acknowledge Tolkien at all. They just publish these, these, uh, these unauthorized knockoff volumes and make presumably a fairly decent amount of money. Tolkien is appalled by this. He starts a grassroots campaign inviting his readers to protest the publication of this unauthorized version, Finally, the publisher of this unauthorized version says, okay, okay, they take it back. They even send Tolkien a nominal payment, though uh, he was pretty unhappy about that for pretty much the rest of his life. Because of the situation with, with copyright in the United States, he needed a new version. So by 1965, he had made some minor changes, some minor revisions, and he brought out the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, which is the version that most of you, I'm sure, have in your hands, have on your desks, have on your nightstands today. That is the version with the famous introduction to the second edition, which Tolkien himself wrote. That was published in 1965. So the book had been out for a full decade by the time the second edition was released. And it's interesting to consider the ways in which Tolkien has voluntarily engaged with his critics. When you read that introduction to the second edition, you can't help but notice Tolkien's tone. He is strident in some regards, particularly with regard to allegory, which we'll discuss a little more carefully in a minute. Um, but he is absolutely taking on his critics. He is uh, asserting his, his authorial perspective on this book in a way that happens very infrequently. Even the introduction to the second edition of The Hobbit isn't quite the same. It's not, it's not striving for the same ends, and it certainly doesn't adopt quite the same tone. But the introduction to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings is, for my money, actually, one of the most uh, interesting and powerful things that Tolkien ever wrote, particularly in his, in his nonfiction work. It's really just lovely. And as I said, we're going to uh, we're going to talk about it right now because we have to talk about allegory. Before we do that, let's see here. Um, Hope says, I have a soapbox and it is U.S. copyright law. 
Valerie says that must be why all my copies say authorized edition. Yes, that may well be the case. Yes. Yes. U.S. copyright law, bewildering and no less bewildering, I'm sure, in, in the 1950s. Uh, what was Return of the King going to be called? I can't remember. Something a little less obvious, says Jackie Boatman. Yes, Tolkien hated the name Return of the King. These, uh, the, the titles of each individual volumes were suggested by Alan and Unwin. Tolkien was actually very happy with the Fellowship of the Ring. He thought that was spot on. He liked the Two Towers because of its ambiguity, because it isn't clear, because for those of you who have read ahead, the Two Towers actually splits roughly in half. There are two different storylines going on through the Two Towers. But the name The Two Towers is kind of applicable to both. Are you talking about Isengard and Barad-dûr? Are you talking about Minas Tirith and Barad-dûr? You know, where are you drawing that line? Which two towers are you referring to? So he kind of liked that. He did not like the return of the king, in part because he felt it spoiled the end of the story, which I think is fair. The third volume was originally going to be called The War of the Ring, which he liked not just because it was grandiose, not just because it was, you know, more and more epic and appropriate, but because it also drew back in the ring. We have the Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers, then the War of the Ring. There's a nice, pleasing symmetry to that. And honestly, I think I prefer the War of the Ring as a title for the third volume over The Return of the King. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure what led to that decision. It seems like a, a very shaky decision indeed. Um, as Lauren says, because which two towers? Absolutely fair. Yes. <laughs> um, Hope says, so I know we all really like Death of the Author, but I live in some in-between land and I love all the personal history. Hope, that's completely fair. It's completely fair to love the personal history and it's completely fair to, um, to do this kind of biographical interpretation. Um, it's not what drives me primarily, but there are plenty of critics and literary analysts out there who spend their entire careers doing exactly that kind of biographical interpretation. And certainly some great biographical interpretation has been applied to the life and works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, we'll talk a little about that as we move through. We're not going to talk a great deal about it because, as I said, that's neither my area of expertise nor really my area of primary interest. And we must remember, too, that that death of the author doesn't doesn't remove the author's position as an informed critic of their own work. It just allows for other perspectives on that work. If Tolkien says that something is true of his work, we're absolutely at liberty to believe him and, and to, to follow that trail as far as we may. We're just also at liberty to accept other contrary perspectives based on the text itself. Really, the, the great virtue of death of the author is that it opens up conversation rather than shutting down conversation. Because without death of the author, well, you get into the situation that you've had with J.K. Rowling over the course of the last 15 years, where academics and, and, and critics and lovers of these stories can discuss Harry Potter a certain amount, but then the, the sledgehammer of canonicity comes down and says, no, 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 actually this. And J.K. Rowling has, has gone a long way to establish uh, her authorial dominance over this world, even in you know, its, its broadest sense, even, even in you know, the, the various properties and versions and adaptations that have accreted around the core books. She has gone a, a long way toward establishing her complete authorial control over those versions, over those interpretations. And for me, that's simply less interesting. Why bother at that point analyzing Harry Potter when you can just send an email to J.K. Rowling or you can just look at the many, many interviews that she's given and find out the quote unquote, I am being very heavy handedly sarcastic here, truth. For me, death of the author simply allows the textual analysis space to breathe because that's what drives me, because that's what I find most curious about stories, what I find most fascinating. That's obviously something that I feel very strongly about, but death of the author does not remove the author's perspective on their own work. It simply says that that's one simple perspective on that work. Yeah. 
Uh, Gene says, Lord of the Rings, so many towers, guys. So many towers. Uh, too many towers? Too many towers? Maybe, maybe too many towers. Um, yes. <laughs> Kate says, I can do a lot around J.K. Rowling's canon. Kate has been, for those of you who have been uh, somehow failing to keep up with the conversation on, on Twitter here, Kate Matt has been doing sterling work over the last couple of days, uh, basically giving... Um, basically giving uh, businesses and, and shops and services to various members of the Audemont community on Twitter in Diagon Alley. So she has been exercising enormous creativity. It has been super fun to read. I strongly suggest that you follow Kate Nett on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> I, I will tweet maybe the beginning. I, I will tweet the, uh, the fountainhead of that torrent uh, after, the, uh, after the seminar is over. Yeah. Um, let me see here. From Sarah. Yes, here we go. Um, Sarah Thomas says, I don't think death of the author requires throwing out background information. It removes the author as explainer. Yes, yes. Yes, which is actually related to the point that we're about to get into about allegory there. Yes, yeah. Robert Hickok says, very fairly, J.K. Rowling has more branding. She's a modern writer. Tolkien didn't have that. That's true. That's true. Um, I don't necessarily think that that Rowling's repeated intrusion into her own secondary world has in any way improved Harry Potter. Um, quite to the contrary, actually. And, and for those of you who are perhaps simply following there and back again and haven't seen my previous work with the first two Harry Potter novels, and I am going to get to Prisoner of Azkaban sometime this late summer or early fall, um, I, I respect the hell out of J.K. Rowling as a writer, as a storyteller. I think she has got great instincts. I think she weaves genuinely magical worlds. I like those stories a lot. I like those stories a lot. I am less thrilled with her role as gatekeeper and guardian of those stories than I am with, with a more permissive approach from, from the storyteller. Yeah. Um, let me see here. And Nikki B says, I like the canonicity of the Harry Potter world. It makes the world seem more tangible to me. That's completely fair, I think. Yeah, that's uh, because what that does is it expands. You don't end up in that Star Wars situation where you have tiers of canonicity. You know, you have there is an established Harry Potter canon and that's pretty much it. You know, it, it's, it's one singular thing, which is therefore, of course, much more broad than than other you know worlds of, of a similar scale. Yeah. OK. OK, here we go. That should do it for now, I think. Let's, let's definitely, um, yes, yes. Uh, Robert says that modern branding doesn't serve to improve Harry Potter. It's just too online or socialized. Sure, which I can, I can absolutely recognize, yeah. Um, okay, let's get into our discussion then of allegory, and I shall show you this first slide. This is perhaps the most famous thing that Tolkien ever wrote that wasn't a part of, of his fictional world. This is his most famous nonfiction writing, and... Wow, I could just have a poster of this. I could just print this out and put it on the wall right here in the studio because it's extraordinary. Um, here we go. As for any inner meaning or message, it has in the intention of the author, none. It is neither allegorical nor topical. As the story grew, it put down roots into the past and threw out unexpected branches. But its main theme was settled from the outset by the inevitable choice of the ring as the link between it and the Hobbit. The crucial chapter, The Shadow of the Past, is one of the oldest parts of the tale. It was written long before the foreshadow of 1939 had yet become a threat of inevitable disaster, and from that point, the story would have developed along essentially the same lines if that disaster had been averted. Its sources are things long before in mind, or in some cases already written, and little or nothing in it was modified by the war that began in 1939 or its sequels. The real war does not resemble the, re the legendary war in its process or its conclusion. If it had inspired or directed the development of the legend, then certainly the ring would have been seized and used against Sauron. 
he would not have been annihilated, but enslaved, and Baradun destroyed, but occupied. Saruman, failing to get possession of the ring, would, in the confusion and treacheries of the time, have found in Mordor the missing links in his own researches into ring lore, and before long he would have made a great ring of his own, with which, with which to challenge the self-styled ruler of Middle-earth. In that conflict, both sides would have held hobbits in hatred and contempt. They would not long have survived, even as slaves. Other arrangements could be devised according to the tastes or views of those who like allegory or topical reference. But I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations, and always have done so since I grew old and weary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader, and the other in the purposed domination of the author. Obviously, Tolkien is talking here about allegory and applicability, which I'll break down in just a moment. But to tie this back to our discussion of death of the author, I think that last line is, let's say, resonant. The one resides in the freedom of the reader. Death of the author empowers the reader to create and to discover alternate viewpoints on a text, to generate and revise alternate interpretations. The absence of death of the author, the present author in the rolling model, is the purposed domination of the reader. That, to me, is the heart of the question when it comes to uh, when it comes to death of the author. But here, Tolkien is talking about allegory and applicability. This entire slide, of course, is his response to the oft-repeated and somehow unsinkable notion that the Lord of the Rings is an allegory for the Second World War, or sometimes an allegory for the First World War. Neither of these things is true. As Tolkien says, it contains, it, it is neither allegorical nor topical. It is not about these things. It is not a transplanting of the First or Second World Wars into a fictional setting so that it might be somehow explored from, from an alternate perspective. That is not what is happening within the pages of The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was completely emphatic. But there is applicability. You can take elements of The Lord of the Rings and, among other things, map them to the First World War, to the Second World War, and you can you can gain a certain perspective, you can feel a certain resonance there, regardless of whether or not it was intentional by Tolkien. He explicitly says here, it was not intentional. This is not about the Second World War. But if you read this book and you find in the pages of the Two Towers, for example, some applicability, if you find some resonance between the fictional events depicted on the page and real-world events that happened in the 1940s, then that is not invalid. That is applicability at work. The problem with allegory, as Tolkien had it, as he talked about at length, is simply that a reliance on allegory makes the story redundant. Because allegory presupposes that the story has a fundamental purpose, that the story has a message to impart or ha is speaking directly to another story that, that occurred in the real world or even another story that occurred in a different fictional frame. If you are writing allegorically, then your story is nothing more than a puzzle box that can be unlocked by the application of specific knowledge. You read The Lord of the Rings and you think, wow, that is a great fantasy story. And then someone says, ah, but did you know it's an allegory for the Second World War. And then you go, oh, that's really cool. Well, now I don't need the Lord of the Rings anymore. I have completely devalued this story because it is nothing but an allegory. And this, I think, is a completely legitimate take on allegory as, as a primary value in writing. This is one of the objections to C.S. Lewis's novels, particularly his, his Narnia novels. They are 
allegorical to the point that they make themselves redundant once the underlying allegory is understood. Because you can read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but if you know the root of that allegory, then you never need to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because there's nothing there. And, and I say nothing there. I'm exaggerating slightly. There are things there which are not strictly allegorical, and there are things there which are, you know, poetically substantial. Um, but, but once you understand the underlying allegory, you never need to read the root text. Stories are not puzzles to be solved. They are experiences. They are, they are through the immersion of the reader, through the investment of the reader's belief, breathing worlds themselves. This is completely fundamental to understanding Tolkien's writing, to understanding Tolkien's perspective on stories, to understanding why it was that he believed that fairy tales and fantasy fiction were as important, are as important as they remain. This is completely key, but we have to be very careful. That doesn't prevent us from finding applicability. We just can't approach this as though it is a mystery to be solved, a riddle to be solved. Yes. Uh, Merging Puppy says, can't allegory also function as a different lens through which to view a known event? It absolutely can. But once you've gained that perspective and you're seeing this known event from this new perspective, then again, the story collapses and all that remains is the allegory. For example, consider, you know, the story of the tortoise and the hare. This is not strictly speaking an allegorical story, but it is a fable because it contains a, a simple didactic moral lesson. So we consider the story of the tortoise and the hare, and by the time we're done with the story of the tortoise and the hare, we, we get to the point, we get to the nut, we get to the kernel, the, the, this moral kernel at the heart of the story. We understand that sometimes slow and steady wins the race. And once you understand slow and steady wins the race, once you are able to kind of abstract that out to Sometimes it is better to move more methodically and slowly than it is to dash off, expend all your energy and take a nap under a tree. Once you've got that didactic nut, you don't need the story anymore. And Tolkien completely resented the idea that stories are nothing but delivery mechanisms for moral instruction. He believed that stories should be so much more important than that, that the emotional experience of reading the story is a reward in and of itself, that applicability when it comes along is valuable, that it absolutely speaks to, to our own personal experiences. But applicability is necessarily unique. Applicability is about our own experience of the world. We can find resonance in Frodo and Sam, for example. We can find resonance within that relationship. We can find applicability within that relationship that is unique and private to us. That doesn't mean that that relationship is allegorical to, an, uh, to a relationship that we've experienced in our real lives. Let's uh, catch up with the chat here because you guys are uh, <laughs> because you guys are, are chatty tonight. Um, yes, uh, Dylan the Joel says going back to own fairy stories. Tolkien liked his stories to evoke a recognition of some greater truth, and World War II World War II wasn't a truth; it was an event. That I think is certainly is certainly a fair perspective. Yes, um, it is fair to say, by the way, that Tolkien was not above using using the Lord of the Rings as a, a means of finding applicability with the Second World War. As he was writing the latter parts of the book, he was corresponding with his son, Christopher, who was currently serving in the Royal Air Force in South Africa. And in those letters, Tolkien talks about the actual Second World War in terms of hobbits and orcs, though we should very crucially note that he was not drawing a dividing line there between the allies and the Axis powers and, and, and putting hobbits firmly on the side of good and orcs firmly on the side of bad. Rather, one of Tolkien's recurring points was simply that there were too many orcs 
on both sides. He felt that, that the war was being violently mismanaged by people whose primary agenda was the perpetuation of this war. So, you know, Tolkien was not himself above leveraging that kind of applicability, using that kind of, of imagery and metaphor in order to make a, a deeper point. But again, that doesn't mean that the story is analogous. That doesn't mean that that's what the story is about and that's the only thing that the story is about. Good. Um, Jack says, if anything, it speaks to the strength of the Lord of the Rings as, as a mythical legendary, that they can be so easily read as allegorical for real world events. That's absolutely true, Jack, too. That um, it, it's fine to say that, that the Lord of the Rings is allegorical for World War II. Okay, it's not fine. You shouldn't say that thing. It's not true. But if you were to believe that that were true, then that casts doubt over the many other applicable comparisons that you can make between the Lord of the Rings and real life circumstances, whether it's whether it's the First World War, whether it's the rise of, of industrialization, whether it's the rise of, of kind of oppressive commercial economics in the mid 20th century. There, there are so many things that you can point to and say, ah, the Lord of the Rings foreshadowed this. Ah, this is what Tolkien was talking about. But if it were genuinely an allegory, he couldn't have been talking about all of those things. Yeah. Princess Ostrich says, I think Narnia is still readable slash watchable even with the allegory. Narnia is 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 enjoyable. Um, how would I distinguish that thought? Let me see. There's a difference between reading a story and investing that story with belief. There's a difference between kind of going through the motions, particularly when we are rereading a story. Rereading a story that we've already read can offer many things, many, many comforts and virtues, which actually have very little to do with the story itself. If you have a beloved book that you read when you were a child, and that book gives you feelings of comfort and feelings of safety and feelings of security and feelings of wonder, then those feelings, by the time you are an adult and you're rereading this book for the 20th time on some rainy, rainy Thursday afternoon, you're curled up under a blanket with a mug of cocoa and you're rereading this book, those virtues actually have nothing to do with the book, or, or at least very little to do with the book, because those virtues are really springing from your personal experience with this piece of art. Allegory, I think, works in a similar way. It is possible for us to enjoy reading Narnia as a, a physical experience, you know, C.S. Lewis could write, you guys, he can write prose, that's great. But in terms of the movement of the story, there's simply less substance there because it is anchored in the allegory. So if you are aware of the underlying allegory, the story becomes inessential. That doesn't mean that it's not enjoyable, it just means that it has been reduced to a template for something else, effectively, or it is being, produ it is being produced following the template that was made for something else. That is maybe the distinction. I'm definitely going to talk about Narnia at some point, you guys. It's just becoming more and more urgent that I do so. Um, let me see here. Mm -mm -mm. Robert says, absolutely, Lewis's world was not inhabitable to the reader. Tolkien's was very inhabitable. Allegory mildly sucks. <laughs> I believe that was actually the first draft of, uh, of Tolkien's forward here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, Sarah says, it's totally possible to see The Lord of the Rings as a fantasy story and at the same time see it as a reflection of the times it was created. And this is very interesting, actually, Sarah, because this, I suppose, is the counterpoint to this discussion of both allegory and, and in a sense, the counterpoint to the discussion of death of the author, which is that, of course, we all are products of our own experience, of our own culture, of our own context and community. We all you know, to, to use the French, we grow from terroir. We, we possess the qualities of the ground in which we were planted. We emerge into adult life, into creative life in particular, carrying with us all of these varied minerals and impurities. We carry with us the fingerprint of our culture, our community, 
and of course our personal experience, and Tolkien did too. So when we say that the Lord of the Rings has nothing to do with the First World War, that may be true. But Tolkien lived through the First World War. It left an impression on him, as we know from his letters. So while it is fair to say that, that the Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit are not about that, it's very difficult to say that they were not influenced by that. And that lends legitimacy, lends depth, lends interest, lends sophistication to the kind of biographical literary analysis that I was discussing earlier. That's not what I do, but there are great books out there about the life of J.R.R. Tolkien and about the way that his personal experience is reflected in his work. They are speculative more often than not, but then honestly, all textual analysis is kind of speculative. You formulate the best argument that you can based on the evidence that you have to hand. So I do think that that's a fair point. And absolutely, as I said earlier, you know, a valid means of interpreting texts. It just, here's what it is. That kind of biographical interpretation puts our primary focus on the author and not on the text. Textual analysis, the kind of close reading that we do here in these live seminars, absolutely encourages us to pay attention to the text and to discard everything else. That, I think, is the more interesting perspective. And I think it's also more to me, and, and by all means argue this point with me, you can get in touch with me via email at pointnorthmedia at gmail.com, via Twitter at pointnorthmedia, or right here in the YouTube chat as we're talking now. Um, by all means argue this with me, but for me, there is something more philosophically pure about a discussion of the text that rests upon the text, as opposed to a discussion of the text that rests upon the biography of the author. If we're talking about the biography of the author, that's where we should look. If I'm trying to interpret J.R.R. Tolkien's life, I should look at the biographical detail of that life rather than looking at Leaf by Niggle. You know, I, I should try and, and pay strictest attention to those things which are of primary importance in the discussion. I think that's where I come down. Though, as ever, of course, this is a... This is an ongoing and fluid discussion. Okay, let me see here. I think I've caught up with everything. Um, <laughs> Emily says, I feel like I'm going to have death of the author relating to the Point North opinion of Narnia. Absolutely fine. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> That's completely fine. Lots of people love Narnia for lots of reasons. And as I said, this perspective on allegory is the professor's perspective. It is a perspective that I am inclined to share. I'm less engaged by puzzle box stories than I am by other kinds of fiction, by, by fiction that supports the, the investment of belief of the reader. But, you know, your mileage may vary. That's absolutely fair. I was hoping, actually, that I was going to get out of here in an hour tonight, you guys, but that doesn't seem to have happened because I am 48 minutes in. Oh, no, we started late. I'm only like 38 minutes in. This is fine, you guys. I started th 38 minutes ago and I've covered one slide so far. That's great. Welcome to there and back again. Um, yes, good, good. Uh, well, this is interesting, too. Uh, Merging Puppy here makes the case. Uh, East of Eden is an allegory of the Cain and Abel story, but I think a textual analysis of East of Eden is far more crunchy than its source material, allegory and all. That's absolutely fair. I think it is possible for an allegory to hmm, to creatively, to, to, to poetically outstrip its source material. Um, hmm. But then I would argue that in order to do that, the allegory has to be little more than an anchor. There has to be sufficient addition. Although that's maybe not necessarily the case. That's really interesting. I'm going to think more on that, and I'm sure I'll talk about it in a future seminar. Yes. Okay, good. Um, let's see here. Time for a next slide. Everyone's calling for a next slide. <laughs> Hope says, I'm not playing the drinking game, but it may be time for a shot. Josh Rooms 13 says, agreed, Hope. Agreed. Okay, look, everyone take a shot. 
And I'll move on to our second slide this evening, which actually gets us into the story. This is where we're to, or, or into the, the proper prefatory material, I suppose. This is concerning hobbits. This book is largely concerned with hobbits, and from its pages, a reader may discover much of their character and a little of their history. Further information will also be found in the selection from the Red Book of Westmarch that has already been published under the title of The Hobbit. That story was derived from the earlier chapters of the Red Book, composed by Bilbo himself, the first hobbit to become famous in the world at large, and called by him there and back again, since they told of his journey into the East and his return, an adventure which later involved all the hobbits and the great events of that age that are here related. Many, however, may wish to know more about this remarkable people from the outset, while some may not possess the earlier book. For such readers, a few notes on the more important points are here collected from Hobbit lore, and the first adventure is briefly recalled. Hobbits are an unobtrusive but very ancient people, more numerous formerly than they are today, for they love peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. A well-ordered and well-farmed countryside was their favorite haunt. They do not and did not understand or like machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a water mill, or a hand loom even though they were skillful with tools. Even in ancient days, they were, as a rule, shy of the big folk, as they call us, and now they avoid us with dismay and are becoming hard to find. They are quick of hearing and sharp-eyed, and though they are inclined to be fat and do not hurry unnecessarily, they are nonetheless nimble and deft in their movements. They possessed from the first of the art of disappearing swiftly and silently when large folk whom they do not wish to meet come blundering by. But this art they have developed until to men it may seem magical. But hobbits have never, in fact, studied magic of any kind, and their elusiveness is due solely to a professional skill that heredity and practice, and a close friendship with the earth, have rendered inimitable by bigger and clumsier races. So this is our hobbit primer, and of course, because J.R.R. Tolkien was a genius, it is presented to us in this quasi-fictional frame. The first reference there to the Red Book of Westmarch, it's almost unpacked for us there in the first paragraph, so I think even the first-time reader would, would understand this. The Red Book of Westmarch is the book that contains both the account of The Hobbit and the account of The Lord of the Rings. As it says here, Bilbo began this book, which, by the way, is called The, Rest, the Red Book of Westmarch simply because the cover was red and because it was kept in Westmarch, which is a an area outside of the Shire that was ceded to the hobbits by the king following the events of the Lord of the Rings. So after the events of the Lord of the Rings, the Shire actually grows. New land is granted to the hobbits. And in that new land, the Westmarch, the book is kept. So the first part of the Red Book of Westmarch is entitled There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Holiday, which was Tolkien's preferred title. What was actually not A Hobbit's Holiday, it was The Hobbit or There and Back Again. He wanted that uh, that subtitle included within the body of the main title, if you like. Um, so Bilbo wrote about his story in the Red Book of Westmarch. That Red Book has been passed down through the ages and now serves as a template of sorts for retellings of the story, for adaptations of the story. The idea here that many, however, may wish to know about this remarkable people from the outset, while some may not possess the earlier book. Hmm. It is possible that you won't possess a copy of The Hobbit, and it's possible that you won't have access to the Red Book of Westmarch. So I guess I should tell you a little about Hobbits here. The second part of the Red Book of Westmarch was written by Frodo and, and also... Uh, Frodo, uh, also Sam, at the, the very end of the story, Sam takes over the writing of, of The Lord of the Rings, which is actually properly titled in the Red Book of Westmarch, The Downfall of the Lord of the Rings, which is probably a less effective title as it goes. But what we really want to look at here is the gloss of Hobbit 
life because even here, though, though this is presented as being completely compatible with our understanding of hobbits from the pages of the first book, there is a development here. There is a, a reframing of our understanding here because we have to remember that, that there is a stark difference, by the way, in The Hobbit between the Shire as we see it at the beginning and the Shire that we see, it, that we see at the end. There's a discontinuity between those two because, well, the tale had told in the growing, because Tolkien's perspective on Hobbits had changed through the writing of the book. That's all the more stark as we move into the pages of The Lord of the Rings. We're going to get this, this incredible tracking shot next week as we effectively move through time and space, drawing closer and closer to Bilbo himself. It's just astonishing. It's a magnificent piece of work, but it introduces us to a Shire that it would seem ought to feel familiar despite the fact that it is brand new. So here we get our sense of hobbits. Hobbits are an unobtrusive but very ancient people, more numerous formerly than they are today, for they love peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. A well-ordered and well-farmed countryside was their favorite haunt. And among you, we'll see a little of Tolkien's hmm, narrative and editorial bias creeping in there, because that semicolon is crucial. Hobbits are an unobtrusive but very ancient people. Great. Let's, let's stipulate that. That's fine. More numerous formerly than they are today, for they love peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. A well-ordered and well-farmed countryside was their favorite haunt. The reason that hobbits are less numerous today than they used to be is that the countryside is no longer well-ordered and well-farmed. They do not have peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. We have come along with our industrialization and we have ruined everything. And we are responsible for the, the number of hobbits that are around nowadays compared to previously. They do not and did not understand or like machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a water mill, or a hand loom, though they are skillful with tools. This, by the way, is the passage that makes the clock on Bilbo's mantle back in The Hobbit anachronistic. Hobbits couldn't have had clocks. If they, if they stick at forge bellows, water mill, hand loom, they couldn't have made clocks. They wouldn't have had clocks. That's why that is, is an odd and anachronistic detail. Um, Dylan the Joel is calling out here, hobbits are basically fairies. Well, this is really interesting. I want to unpack that a little bit, actually, with our, our next slide as we start looking at the varieties of hobbits, because yes, yes, that's really interesting. Um, are we getting some question about narrative voice here? Huh. Okay, I'll, I'll try and scroll back and, and find the root of that. Yes. Um, so, so we understand forge bellows, water mill, hand loom. These are... What do these things have in common? The thing that these things have in common is that they are machines. Yes, they are conveniences in a sense, but they do not replace the work of a hobbit. They do not render any hobbit inessential. They are tools more than they are machines. Even the water mill is an automated function that, that requires maintenance. It requires, you know, the person who would previously have... have I don't know what the version would have been of that. I, the person who would have, I guess, ground uh, ground wheat into flour is, is now still doing work. They're still maintaining the water mill. There is still work to be done. There is no hint of industrialization or mechanization in the modern sense within the Shire. 
Even in ancient days, they were as a rule shy of the big folk, as they call us. Now they avoid us with dismay and are becoming hard to find. You guys, we're the worst. We're to blame for this. And then we get our description here. And what's perhaps most interesting about the, the description itself is simply that uh, the idea that this art, which is... Um, this elusiveness due solely to a professional skill that heredity and practice and a close friendship with the earth have rendered inimitable by bigger and clumsier races. This skill, this, this native skill that is in part connected to a closeness to the earth now seems to us to be magical because we, by inference, are no longer connected to the earth there. Uh, Kate is correctly calling out here in, in the chat, clocks are an old invention. That's completely fair, but we get the, the tick of a mantle clock. It is clearly supposed to be a clock in the, I don't know, the very earliest Victorian style, I guess. I would have been very surprised if, if that was consistent with our understanding of hobbits. But, but if you know more about the history of clocks than I, and it's very likely that you do, then by all means, get in touch and let me know. So this gives us our sense of, of hobbits and their society. Um, we're getting some questions here about, uh, about, um, <laughs> about indoor plumbing. Yeah, yeah. Robert Hickok says, and a close friendship with the earth. So much for human industrialism. Very fair. Very fair. Uh, Lauren says, couldn't they buy clocks from men? Well, it's not at all clear that men would have clocks either. Um, and certainly the insular and very well-respected Baggins family probably wouldn't have had much trade with men within the Shire. So it's, it's possible that you would expect if, if the clock on Bilbo's mantle was, um, was that unusual that it would have attracted a little additional attention. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't hate the idea that this is actually a relic of, of Belladonna Took, that, that once upon a time, Belladonna Took traveled far outside of the Shire and bought a clock. That seems entirely appropriate for such a scandalous figure. Yes. Good. <laughs> All right. Let's, um, yes, good. Might have been his mother's clock, says Hope. Yes, I could see Belladonna owning a clock. I could see Belladonna owning a clock too. Okay. We, we might be able to stipulate then that that is not, in fact, anachronistic. It just hints at a fantastic backstory for Belladonna Took. I am into that idea. Let me tell you. Um, okay, let's move ahead. I, I won't even bother taking this, uh, taking this slide down. We'll just move right on to the next one. This is the history of the tribes of hobbits, if you like. And this suggests something very interesting about the position of hobbits vis-a-vis -vis the rest of Middle-earth, uh, particularly the relation of hobbits with other races. Before the crossing of the mountains, the hobbits had already become divided into three somewhat different breeds, Harfoots, Stoors, and Fallowhides. The Harfoots were browner of skin, smaller and shorter, and they were beardless and bootless. Their hands and feet were neat and nimble, and they preferred highlands and hillsides. The Stoors were broader, heavier in build. Their feet and hands were larger, and they preferred flatlands and riversides. The Fallowhides were fairer of skin and also of hair. They were taller and slimmer than the others. They were lovers of trees and woodlands. The Harfoots had much to do with dwarves in ancient times and long lived in the foothills of the mountains. They moved westward early and roamed over Eriador as far as Weathertop, while the others were still in, the wild, still in wilder land. They were the most normal and representative variety of Hobbit and far the most numerous. They were the most inclined to settle in one place and longest preserved their ancestral habit of living in tunnels and holes. The Stores lingered long by the banks of the great river Anduin and were less shy of men. They came west after the Harfoots had followed the course of the Loudwater southwards, and there, and there many of them long dwelt between Tharbad and the borders of Dunland before they moved north again. 
The Fallowhides, the least numerous, were a northerly branch. They were more friendly with elves than the other hobbits were, and had more skill in language and song than in handicrafts, and of old they preferred hunting to telling. They crossed the mountains north of Rivendell and came down the river Horwell. In Eriador they soon mingled with the other kinds that had preceded them, but being somewhat bolder and more adventurous, they were often found as leaders or chieftains among clans of Harfoots or Stewards. Even in Bilbo's time, the strong Falahidish strain could still be noted among the greater families, such as the Tooks and the Masters of Buckland. It is fascinating. I, I so completely love this incidental detail that the Fallowhides, who are so closely associated with elves that they seem to have taken on elvish characteristics themselves, fairer of skin and also of hair taller and slimmer than the others, they have taken on elvish characteristics and, and talk and communicate with elves, and of course, they are the greatest of all hobbits, and their blood is so pure that it has been passed down to some of the greater families, you know, such as the Tooks and the Masters of Buckland. Because, of course, the Tooks have elvish blood within them, or, or elvish-adjacent elvish blood within them. I completely love that detail. I completely love how it, how it inclines our expectation here. Austin is calling out here, one of them having taken a fairy wife. Hey, maybe, because isn't it odd how the hobbits are, are split into these different breeds, as Tolkien calls them. We, we might think of them perhaps as, as tribes or as, as racial subgroups, ethnic subgroups perhaps, but, but certainly different breeds. Harfoots, Stores, and Fallowhides, or as we might think of them, dwarves, men, and elves. The connections are explicit. The Harfoots, the Harfoots, excuse me, hang out with dwarves. They live in mountain holes. They, they live as dwarves live and are even, you know, uh, physically somewhat similar to dwarves in, in that they are smaller and shorter, browner of skin. Beardless and bootless is a little tricky, but yes, their hands. And, and let me just, let me just draw our attention to uh, Tolkien's use of alliteration there. The Harfoots were browner of skin, smaller and shorter. They were beardless and bootless. Their hands and feet were neat and nimble, and they preferred highlands and hillsides. Their hands and feet were neat and nimble is, ah, that's gorgeous. I love the poetry and the rhythm of that line. This is Tolkien absolutely at his most confident. This is Tolkien just almost just showing off for the fun of it, it feels like. So the Harfoots are associated with the dwarves, the Stores are associated with the men, the Fallowhides are associated with the elves. Now we talked about this a little before, that canonically, basically, hobbits are men. Hobbits are actually a descendant of, of you know, the children of Iluvatar. They are, they are of, of <laughs> I'm getting tripped up already. That's going to be a dangerous tangent if I go down that path. So I'm going to refuse and instead say that hobbits are connected with men. But here we see that hobbits are also representative of all the races of Middle-earth. They embody to some degree the greatest qualities of men and dwarves and elves. They certainly coexist in a way that men and dwarves and elves don't in that, as we saw at, at the Lonely Mountain, as we saw in the kingdom of Erebor and Dale and the woodland realm of the Elven King, men and dwarves and elves can coexist in alliance, but they don't unify into a single kingdom. Erebor was a dwarven kingdom. Dale was a human kingdom. The Elf King's realm, of course, is an elven kingdom. So even when they are allied, they are distinct. But here we're cued to see immediately that, well, hobbits are just more gregarious than that. Hobbits are more socially mobile than that. It is all but impossible to think of an elf ruling a clan of dwarves, for example, or a clan of men. 
But here we have the Fallohides ruling over Harfoots and Stores. It's it's an interesting nod, I think, to a kind of communal unity that we will see actually from the Hobbits as we move into the book itself. Now, this is not to say that that Hobbit culture is some great, you know, egalitarian utopia, because of course it isn't. It is a pretty feudalistic society. That was actually in line with Tolkien's belief for for what made a well-ordered nation, you know, for what made a, a well-ordered community. A natural hierarchy where there are people in charge and people who are not in charge. And the people who in charge who are in charge are just naturally better than the people who aren't. We're probably going to have to wrap our heads around that pretty quick. Otherwise, Frodo's relationship with Sam is going to challenge us repeatedly through the course of the book. But nonetheless, that is how Tolkien saw well-ordered communities functioning. And that's absolutely reflected in our understanding of the Shire. <laughs> Madame Esmeralda, formerly Esmeralda Salt, uh, on Twitter says, Belladonna Took is my Patronus. I'm kind of super into that, actually. That, that's, that's very good. Yes. <laughs> Um, Jason says, wasn't Smeagol a Stur Hobbit? Um, I don't think that's ever confirmed, but it would make sense. Yes, yes, I can do that. Um, mm. Shane says, even in his prologue, Tolkien is a master. Tolkien never wrote without exercising the opportunity to make it beautiful, to make it resonant, to make it just just breathtakingly and almost unnecessarily gorgeous, as I said, almost showing off. Yes, uh, we are going to talk about um, we're going to talk about Smeagol and Deagle when we get the chance. Smeagol and Deagle, I suppose. I think that those are supposed to be pronounced distinctly. That's really unpleasant to say out loud, so I'm probably just going to stick with Smeagol and Deagle, as most people do. Um, but we're going to talk about that when we get to it because we will get an accounting of that uh, very, very soon. Yes. Good. Um, don't care. Says Narnia here. Sam is the best. Yes, absolutely. Sam is just fantastic. We're just going to have to say this, I guess, every week between now and the end of the book, I suppose, except for those few chapters in which Sam does not appear. Sam is just the greatest. It's, it's fine. It's good. We're, we're all on the same page with that. Yes. Nikki says, seems like we could learn a lot from hobbits these days. Certainly, that was Tolkien's point. Certainly, he believed that the vision of an agrarian, if not feudalistic, then at least hierarchical social structure as presented in the Shire was most desirable. The further the further away that we got from that vision of utopia, which is, of course, I mean, perhaps this doesn't actually translate as well for our American listeners, for American readers of The Lord of the Rings. But, of course, that version of, of hierarchical agrarian society, this, this kind of sun-dappled, golden-suffused vision of the past – that is pretty much England's golden age. That is is England's vision of its own previous utopia. That is England's sense, I think, of its best self. So Tolkien was certainly referring to that purposefully in that this is supposed to be a history of England's golden age, of England's mythic past. But, or I guess by the time The Lord of the Rings is published, that's less true. But but certainly that was an element in the development of, of these stories. But also that he himself had been somewhat persuaded by that. We must remember that Tolkien didn't, well, Tolkien wasn't born in England. He was born in South Africa and moved back to England when he was three. And I oftentimes wonder, here we are, biographical analysis, right? Um, I oftentimes wonder to what degree his fervent devotion to this kind of of mythic, flag-waving, buttered scone, Jerusalem singing vision of England was informed by the fact that it it wasn't quite, you know, all but, but wasn't quite his native land. You know, he had had this, this different 
experience, I suppose. That's uh, of course he was English. He wasn't uh, South African. His father was was uh, serving in South Africa at the time, so he was absolutely English and was was raised completely uh, in, in complete continuance with this culture. But I've oftentimes wondered that. Okay, as Valerie says, looking at the past, we often put on rose-colored glasses. Yes, we certainly certainly do. It don't connect. Says if I was editing Lord of the Rings, my only notes would say more Sam. Hey. No spoilers, I guess. Sam gets to end the book, and that's pretty good. Uh, one of the pages that we're going to talk about over the course of the next year and a half, in which I will very likely weep openly as I'm reading that slide. Anyway, let's move on and uh, get to the last part of our On Hobbits slide here. This is actually our penultimate slide of the evening. Very, very few slides this week, which is why I've been able to uh, talk so freely and so... so uh, it, uh, how can I put this? Talk so freely and so inessentially about other uh, tangents. Um, this is from the end of the Concerning Hobbits, yes. All hobbits were, in any case, clannish and reckoned up their relationships with great care. They drew long and elaborate family trees with innumerable branches. In dealing with hobbits, it is important to remember who is related to whom and in what degree. It would be impossible in this book to set out a family tree that included even the most important members of the, mo of the more important families at the time which these tales tell of. The genealogical trees at the end of the Red Book of Westmarch are a small book in themselves, and all but hobbits would find them exceedingly dull. Hobbits delighted in such things, if they were accurate. They liked to have books filled with things they already knew, set out fair and square with no contradictions. This is important in that it is our final beat of, of foundation laying for our understanding of hobbits. This is where we leave this part of the book. Hobbits delighted in such things if they were accurate. They liked to have books filled with things they already knew, set out fair and square with no contradictions. Do they? Do they like those things? Or do most hobbits like those things? We're reminded, I think, here fairly forcibly of the tension in Bilbo's character between Took and Baggins, but more importantly, the tension between Bilbo's Tookish nature and society. We are told in The Hobbit that he, lo that he loses the respect of his neighbors. We're going to see how that plays out, in fact, as we move into the first chapter of The Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit society is presented to us here as being extremely staid and formal and conventional. They like things neat and unambiguous and in their proper place, please and thank you. Except for when they don't. Because Hobbits are more than this genealogical chart would imply. They are more than even this survey of Hobbitry would lead us to believe. Rather, Hobbits are are more complicated. And we're going to see that play out, as I said, in the first chapter. We're going to get two versions of pretty much the same scene, but we're going to see different generations of hobbits interacting. And we're going to get an opportunity to talk about the many ways in which Bilbo's return from the East has changed hobbit culture. For the better? Arguably. Yes. Lorna says, I like to have books filled with things I didn't know set out fair and square with no contradictions. <laughs> I like that very much, Lorna. Yes, that's the scientific mind right there. Yes, good. Good. Hope Hornsby says, oh my God, I'm a hobbit. I think there, there is a point at which we all realize that we are hobbits to a greater or lesser degree. Yeah. Good. Austin says earlier in the prologue, Tolkien talks about how you shouldn't underestimate hobbits. Yes, absolutely fair. Yeah. Yes, and Jackie Boatman says, Bilbo and Frodo look down on their fellow hobbits a little bit. So if Frodo's writing this, I think he believes it. We are going to get from Frodo in the first chapter a... um 
an absolutely definitive line that, that completely sums up his perspective on life in the Shire. We'll talk about that when we get to it next week. Yes. Good. It don't connect says, I could never be a hobbit. I can't even keep my mom's cousin straight. Genealogy, guys, genealogy. All right, let's skip ahead here. Um, yes. Okay, yeah, we've been running just over an hour and, and we're probably approaching time to wrap up. This is going to be a shorter session, as I said. So uh, let's move ahead to our final slide of the evening, which is basically the end of the prefatory material. Yes. Gandalf, however, disbelieved Bilbo's first story as soon as he heard it, and he continued to be very curious about the ring. Eventually, he got the true tale out of Bilbo after much questioning, which for a while strained their friendship. But the wizard seemed to think the truth important. Though he did not say so to Bilbo, he also thought it important and disturbing to find that the good hobbit had not told the truth from the first, quite contrary to his habit. The idea of a present was not mere hobbit-like invention all the same. It was suggested to Bilbo as he confessed by Gollum's talk that he overheard, for Gollum did, in fact, call the ring his birthday present many times. That also, Gandalf thought strange and suspicious. But he did not discover the truth in this point for many more years, as will be seen in this book. Of Bilbo's later adventures, little more need be said here. With the help of the ring, he escaped from the orc guards at the gate and rejoined his companions. He used the ring many times on his quest, chiefly for the help of his friends, but he kept it secret from them as long as he could. After his return to his home, he never spoke of it again to anyone, save Gandalf and Frodo, and no one else in the Shire knew of its existence, or so he believed. Only to Frodo did he show the account of his journey that he was writing. His sword, Sting, Bilbo hung over his fireplace, and his coat of marvellous mail, the gift of the dwarves from the dragon horde, he lent to a museum, to the Mickledelving Matham House, in fact. But he kept in a drawer at Bag End the old cloak and hood he had worn on his travels, and the ring, secured by a fine chain, remained in his pocket. He returned to his home at Bag End on June the 22nd in, the 52nd, in his 52nd year, Shire Reckoning 1342, and nothing very notable occurred in the Shire until Mr. Baggins began the preparations for the celebration of his 111th birthday, Shire Reckoning 1401. At this point, this history begins. A couple of very quick pulls here. Uh, you will note, with the help of the ring, he escaped from the orc guards at the gate and rejoined his companions. This is one of the pieces of evidence which tells us that goblins and orcs, completely interchangeable. Tolkien was emphatic that they were goblins throughout the entirety of The Hobbit because he wanted that fairy tale perspective. In The Lord of the Rings, the fairy tale perspective is less important. He is instead recommitting to his secondary world, to his, to his secondary creation. So he drops the cutesy fairy tale name and uses instead the Anglo-Saxon derived name, Orc. They're one and the same let this be an end to it. <laughs> of course, I'm not telling you guys to drop it. You guys already know, but there are people out there who will still ask whether goblins and orcs are the same thing. It is one of those recurring questions. We're going to talk about balrogs and wings in a few weeks' time, and that's going to be fun too. Jackie's calling out retcon. Ah, uh, just a name change. I suppose that's not really a retcon, is it? Is it? Mm, Jackie, good pull. All right. Um, Mickey says, I think hobbits are a lot more tenacious and adaptable than they give themselves credit for. Their genuine goodly and positive nature only serves them. Mickey, I like that a great deal. I like that, I like that a lot, actually. The idea that they are constrained by convention is really just kind of a, a polite facade to disguise the fact that they're just really good-hearted. I like that. Nikki also says, you, can, you know you can trust hobbits when you leave a coat of mithril just lying around in a museum. I love that. Um, the uh, the Mickledelving Matham House here, this is mentioned earlier in, in the reading, but in case you, you somehow skipped it or have forgotten, Mathams are those objects which are 
valuable and of, of sentimental value to hobbits, but for which they have no use at all. So these are our family heirlooms and, and valuable trinkets, which the hobbits don't need and don't even necessarily want. So they donate them to a Matham house for the edification of all. It is just gorgeous and completely consistent, I think, with our, our understanding of uh, with our understanding of Hobbit culture here. Princess Ostrich is saying in all caps, a Balrog of Morgoth. Yeah, we'll talk about Morgoth when we get there too, because that's pretty important. Okay, um, let's see what we have here. Um, <laughs> the YouTube chat tonight is just sparky. You guys are are. We're doing good work here, doing good work. So here in the first paragraph, we have a recapitulation of the story that we discussed previously. This is the breaking point between the first edition of The Hobbit and the second edition of The Hobbit. We have to remember that at this point, the second edition of The Hobbit had only been out for four years. So it is very likely that people coming to The Fellowship of the Ring may not have read the new edition of The Hobbit. They may not have seen the new version of the Riddles in the Dark chapter. They may not know this particular golem. So right up front, we get this again, in fiction framing of this discontinuity. The first version of The Hobbit is the story that Bilbo told Gandalf originally. The second version of The Hobbit is the true story of what happened beneath the Misty Mountains. So we get a recapitulation of that. And here, as has been called out in the uh, in the uh, YouTube chat here, um, already the ring is, is straining their friendship. Um, we see here, too, in the second paragraph, uh, with the help of the ring, he escaped from the orc guards at the gate and rejoined his companions. He used the ring many times on his quest, chiefly for the help of his friends, but he kept it secret from them as long as he could. Chiefly for the help of his friends will be very important when we move into the first chapter and we talk about the ring's influence over Bilbo. His sword sting, Bilbo hung over the fireplace because he is still, after all, the son of Belladonna Took. His coat of marvelous mail, the gift of the dwarves from the Dwarven Horde, he lent to a museum, to the Mickledelphic Madam House, in fact, but he kept in a drawer at Bag End the old cloak and hood that he had worn on his travels, and the ring, secured by a fine chain, remained in his pocket. That is such a beautiful line that is so rich and ominous and gorgeous. I just love the way that it it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. It, it, it really prompts us to, to keep an eye on the ring and to always be aware of its presence here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Angela says that would have been an interesting, an interesting experience to never have read the revision. I completely agree. It would have been fascinating. I, I don't know how that would have played. Uh, I, I do think that this frames it, and certainly Gandalf and Frodo are going to talk about this later, so we're going to get another recapitulation of the story, but it's going to be uh, even more in fiction, as it were. So there's no way that, that by that point readers would have been unaware of what had happened, but yes, yes. Dylan says, do people normally hang their swords over the mantelpiece? Well, yeah, if, if you've got a, an elf sword from the fall of Gondolin, and uh, it glows when goblins are near, I guess, and, and you're the son of Belladonna Tuck, I guess maybe you do. <laughs> So this takes us then. Um, oh, interesting. Robert says, Bilbo grew into all of the items in the list except the mithril, the only actual gift he received, and dwarvish with baggage at that. Huh. Yeah, that, that's, that's very interesting. And, and Chesley, of course, calls that too. I love that. Bilbo goes on a grand adventure and quietly hangs his sword on the mantelpiece and lives his life. Token baggins in one hobbit. That's, that's absolutely right, yes. The, uh, the hanging sting on the wall might be somewhat... Tookish, keeping sting, I guess, is somewhat Tookish. But yes, you're right. Hanging it on the wall above the mantle where Bilbo can sit and smoke him and, and blow smoke rings, that is absolutely Baggins. Yes. Yes. 
Good. Okay. That, I think, you guys will do it. Let me call up the final slide here, and we can look ahead to the next session. The Fellowship of the Ring, Chapter 1, A Long Expected Party. That will be at 2 p.m. Eastern next Thursday, May the 4th. I may have to do something Star Wars related that day too. We'll see how that works out. But uh, yes, 2 p.m. Eastern next week for the Fellowship of the Ring 1, a long expected party. As I said, we are going to move pretty slowly through the first three chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring. We're going to move pretty slowly through the entirety of the Lord of the Rings, actually. The reading pace is going to drop slightly from where we were with The Hobbit, I think, if memory serves. It's, it's broadly the same, but I think it drops slightly. But we're going to move pretty slowly through these first three chapters because they are dense. There's so much to discuss and so much value to be gained from them. I can't wait to get into this. I can't wait to discuss the Lord of the Rings proper. If you have questions about uh, about the prefatory material here, if you have questions about anything that we've discussed this week, anything that we discuss any week, you can get in touch with me directly. Email pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. Everything that we do here at Point North, all of the seminars and the podcasts that I produce, all of these discussions are made possible thanks to your generosity. If you would like to help Point North continue to exist, if you would like to make sure that we're around in a year and a half to finish The Lord of the Rings and to push ever onward into the Silmarillion, as I'm sure that we will. If you would like to help me take more time to produce special one-shot lectures, to produce supplemental lectures, to have just extra sessions thrown in here and there, I can do all of those things. I just need your support. Head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash pointnorthmedia and pledge your support. A dollar a month is all it takes. If everyone who listened to There and Back Again pledged a dollar a month, I would be absolutely able to do this, you know, forever, forever, forever. I, I would produce, I would immediately start four more podcasts is what I would do because I'm just a sucker for these discussions. This is the best job in the world and I get to do it because of you guys. I am enormously grateful. Thank you so much for listening tonight. Thank you so much for hanging out. I will talk to you all again very soon. As I said, next week, the first chapter of the Fellowship of the Ring, our journey is about to begin. I'll talk to you all soon. Until then, take care. Take care.